this week on the Digital Dust Podcast. They're called the X-Men, which I think is really funny, but um, they have some of the most, you know, you know, but they have some of the most powerful and epic and amazing women ever. Welcome back to the Digital Dust Podcast. I'm Katie, I'm Robin, I'm Liz, and I'm Patrick. From the future, this is all a ruse! That was all, that wasn't even them, that was me the whole time, oh my gosh, wow. Alright, well, hey everybody, we're uh, back at it. This is the second part of the Season 2 finale for the Digital Dust Podcast. Uh, I'm once again speaking to you from the future, letting you know that this is going to be part two of our superheroes episode, the episode where I talk about female characters in comic books, whether they're love interests, heroes, villains, and this week, particularly, we're going to be talking about legacy characters and a few other odds and ends that we didn't have time for last time. So this is the finale. Stay tuned to the end to what I'm sure is a wonderful quick little wrap up. Uh, for the season, and a thank you to you guys for all your support as always. But until then, this is the episode. I, I, here it is! Wow! <laughs> Alright, great. So the next section, we, we're going back to female superheroes. But this one came from a few of you, actually. We had some, some of these questions actually came from Katie and from Liz at the same time. Robert, I'm getting to you, I swear. I just, yours is so good, <laughs> I want to leave it for the finale. So, oh, right. so, but next up we have what are known as legacy characters, which are essentially heroes who take on the persona of a pre-existing hero, or for, for the sake of this case, even though it might not technically fit the term, I'm also including female versions of characters. So we're going to start with Supergirl as an example, but that, that sort of thing, where it's like, instead of Superman, you have Supergirl. Instead of creating a new female character, you create a female character that's attached to a male character. So that's the, the next sort of topic that we're going to cover of, of women in comics. So starting with Supergirl, who Liz asked about. So Supergirl is a common example. She was actually created in 1959, about 20 years after Superman. Whereas someone like Superboy was created a lot sooner, which is interesting. Superboy. In yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she, was, uh, she was actually killed off in a famous 1985 DC book named Crisis on Infinite Earths. Wow, we don't have time to get into that story. It is it reset the entire continuity in one sentence or less. I, it, it, Crisis on Infinite Earths was essentially DC's moment to be like, we have over twenty years of continuity that we don't want to think about, so we're going to reset everything so that we don't have to think about anything for the last twenty years in terms of what these characters have gone through. And that, that was, it was just a big continuity, like, oh, you like that from before this book? We'll keep that. Oh, you don't like that from before this book? We won't keep that. And that, like, it was literally just like a way to clean up their whole story and the, and the history of these characters. In the process of that story, though, Supergirl was killed. When killed, DC's executive editor said this, and this really points to, to Liz's question for me about legacy characters and if they're really good female representation or, or, or not, or what's the conversation there. So DC's executive editor after Supergirl's death said, Supergirl was created initially to take advantage of the high Superman sales, and not much thought was put into her creation. She was created essentially as a female Superman. With time, writers and artists improved upon her execution, but she never really did add anything to the Superman mythos. At least not for me. Because a whole, a whole woman's purpose 
is to just lift up and support a man. Yeah. Yes. To have her own story. Exactly. Her own agency. And, and when she doesn't serve that purpose anymore, Liz, we kill her. That's, yeah. That's yeah. Exactly. And then you shove, Disposable. shove her in the fridge. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so good representation or bad? Well, this is a common trend. Get new readers, especially women, by making a, a girl version of a famous character. This is just a really common thing that happens all the time. It's to, to, to get female readership and that sort of thing. It's not necessarily bad reputation, I would argue, to make new characters connected to old ones. The problem is that this is really the main, if not sometimes only, place for female characters. So sure, Robin and Superboy were created, but so were the Flash and Green Lantern and countless others. So this, some could argue, is because of, of boys being the primary readers and they want to appeal to the majority of their readers. Uh, which is clearly a problem uh, in our society in and of itself about sort of gendering what people want to read and, and what have you. But regardless, it's very clear this happens more often to female characters than to male characters. Additionally, it makes female readers seem like a statistic. Some, like, sort of like a, we need more female readers, let's make a woman character, which is a pretty shitty outlook. So the origin of these sorts of characters is often pretty pessimistic and, and not great in those ways, but sometimes it does work out well. And so I want to sort of complicate that uh, idea by looking at a few other examples that were suggested by some folks. So Katie, you were interested in Kamala Khan. Uh, so let's talk about her. <laughs> so she's a fascinating example because she sort of speaks to this question about representation through legacy characters from an intersectional perspective. Because for her, it's a change of racial identity rather than gender identity. So this is where things get a little complicated. Essentially, in 2012, Carol Danvers, who for the longest time was the comic book character Ms. Marvel, decided to change her name to Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel is the title of the movie that came out in like 2019, I think, with uh, Brie Larson, all that sort of stuff. So that Captain Marvel in that movie played by Brie Larson is Carol Danvers, who for the longest time was named Ms. Marvel. In 2012, in the comics, several years before the movie, she changed her name to, to Captain Marvel. When she became Captain Marvel, Marvel Comics was like, hey, we need a new Ms. Marvel. So they created uh, Kamala Khan. And so Kamala was like a moment where this isn't a female character filling the void of a former male character. This was actually a female character filling the void of, of a former female character. But this is also an opportunity to do another sort of like diversity thing beyond just women and add race into the mix. So instead of instead of it being a white woman as Ms. Marvel, let's have a Middle Eastern woman who is Marvel's first major Muslim character and that sort of thing. Let's explore that world. And so like this conversation is always going to be complicated and full of yeses and nos and that like like is that tokenizing or or what have you or i mean they 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 got a uh, a muslim writer <laughs> to write the kamala khan stories when she first came out so like it it was coming from a place in, in many ways of of really trying to broaden the perspective and and stories that they were telling in marvel so there there is some good and some bad so kamala khan is an example of this but carol danvers as a bit of a sidestep is not entirely clean of this history either because essentially while she turned into Captain Marvel in 2012, Captain Marvel was itself a superhero name that existed since the 1970s or so. There's also another DC character named Captain Marvel, later named Shazam, played by Zachary Levi in the Shazam movie. That is something totally separate. Essentially, Marvel Comics has a character named Captain Marvel who is a space 
alien who's an alien cosmic hero literally named marvell m-a-r hyphen v-e-l-l was his name like kala what's Kal-El? superman's yeah. yeah like like Kal-El? yeah That's... yeah so captain marvell <laughs> and he was captain marvel and when when he I, I forget if he died or whatever but and he was sort of shelved essentially captain marvel went through a whole bunch of people for such a long time and then eventually the name just wasn't used for a while and then carol danvers got it in 2012 so it's not that like in this wild story with a thousand different like uh string things that are going off in different directions it's it's not that carol danvers went from ms marvel to a new identity of captain marvel it's that she assumed a previous identity held by a man so even in this example of kamala khan becoming the new ms marvel taking that from a from a, a woman carol danvers to get rid of or to get to, to move away from Ms. Marvel went to a name that was already held by uh, by a male figure as well but that name was pretty unknown and so it, it doesn't have the same sort of resonance as a Supergirl or something like that so that's just a wild sort of web make of that what you will but I just think it, it, it Kamala Khan gives some really interesting insights into how race plays into this conversation and and just diversity in a broader sense I think that's really interesting now, race and gender actually provide two excellent examples of how a mantle, that is to say, the same name as a former hero and not a blank girl version, is an interesting way to include legacy characters and representation. The best example I can give you is this guy right here, Miles Morales. <laughs> I love that Now, man. Miles Morales, and we'll get to Kate Bishop in a moment, but Miles Morales is, is an example for race. Kate Bishop is an example for gender. So, both take the same name as Peter Parker and Clint Barton, Spider-Man and Hawkeye. For these characters, their race and gender is to include more representation, but they aren't defined by that representation. It isn't Black Superman or Hawk Girl, just Spider-Man and Hawkeye. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't have to gender it or, or racialize it in any way, and that's really important because the sort of more cynical or, or grounded argument for why legacy characters are important for representation is because I think the last Marvel superhero to be invented was like 2005 like i i don't they, i don't think they've come up with new headline superheroes in such a long time you know i mean like like literally if you list any marvel hero that you know it arguably came from the 60s or captain america from the 40s or as late as the 80s like like it's it's pretty rare for superheroes in particular not villains as much but heroes to to have been created in more modern comic book time so with that in mind, if you want to add new representation, it's going to be really hard to sell a new book about a black guy or about a, a, a black woman or like any any sort of diversity that you want to do. It's going to be a lot harder to create a new book about it. And so what they do is they consolidate it and essentially say, okay, everyone loves Spider-Man. Let's let's make a black Spider-Man, and then every everyone will, like you already have a readership at the beginning. That's the sort of like pragmatic argument behind why legacy characters often exist in this way. And yeah, and and so that's that's that general thing. I can get more into it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I'm gonna move on. <laughs> um, I want to talk about Kate Bishop, which is another person that Katie wanted me to uh, to talk about. She's an interesting example of a legacy character similar to Ms. Marvel in that she replaces a dead hero, which is interesting. Ms. Marvel. So as I said, when Ms. Marvel became Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel was like dead for like years, and no one was using that name. So she sort of assumed a dead person's name. So. <laughs> While Kate earned popularity this past year with the Hawkeye TV show and gained comic popularity in 2012 with a book by Matt Fraction, she actually 
was created way back in the early 2000s. I believe 2005 is when she was created. And she was created as a founding member of the Young Avengers, which is sort of like the Teen Titans if you're into DC Comics, but it's like it's like kid characters being the Avengers. And so she was she was one of the founding members of that team. So for a bit of context, Clint Barton died in an early 2000s Marvel event called Avengers Disassembled, in which the Avengers roster was uh, decimated by Scarlet Witch, and Barton is one of the Avengers who died in that battle. So she essentially took that mantle from him when he was dead. She's I'll really cool that. as well, just in part. I said, I'll have that. <laughs> yeah, literally. And when he came back too, I think he like let her keep it for a little while in terms of like, he just, he, I think he went on to be Ronan at that point. In any case, she as a character is just super cool. She's portrayed as level-headed, tough-minded, blunt, independent, and so on. Some of uh, what we'll see with Barbara Gordon when we get into her Batgirl. Anyway, so she's also sort of considered a better archer than Clint occasionally as well. So it's an interesting example of a, of a legacy character and a woman character who actually is shown as being as good, if not sometimes better, than the former male character. So I think she's really interesting in that way. Next up, I, this is a Robin mentioned suggestion. We have Jane Foster as Thor. So this was a, a more recent thing in the, in the 2010s. She doesn't take over a dead character's mantle, nor a second version of a character's mantle, mantle, nor a whatever girl persona. She actually becomes Thor. This is why she's so interesting and different from all the others. Essentially, in the early 2010s, the writers of Thor decided that he wasn't worthy of his hammer anymore. Though it was a neat idea for a, I thought it was a neat idea for a story, rather. So, who would be a worthy replacement? And they said that they only talked about Jane Foster who's played by Natalie Portman in the movies, been a love interest to Thor since, like, his origin in the 60s. So, uh, the most tangible example, I think, of a mantle character, rather than just sort of someone who takes up the name, like, this is literally, she becomes Thor. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Essentially, the hammer says, whosoever holds this hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Meaning that Thor is almost a force contained in this hammer. And if you wield the hammer, then you're Thor now. That's kind of, like, the, the idea of it, right? So Jane Foster starts as a love interest character in the 60s, like Mary Jane, Lois Lane, but less independent. She was a nurse for a long time. And so when she takes the mantle of Thor, the writer of the book, Jason Aaron, says, this is not she Thor. This is not Lady Thor. This is not Thorita. This is Thor. This is the Thor of the Marvel Universe, but it's unlike any Thor we've ever seen before. So when original Thor eventually returns, which is interesting, like, so like this happened for a while. She was Thor for quite a while. And then... In more recent years, she essentially Thor came back and he was worthy again because, of course, in this sort of story, you're eventually going to give the mantle back to the original holder because he's not dead or out of commission necessarily. He's just sort of taking a break for narrative purposes. But unlike what you might expect, that she would be powered down and back to like a civilian, she actually became a member of the Valkyrie, which is a Marvel Comics North mythological female warrior group. <laughs> so sort of like the Amazons. Nailed Thank it. You. <laughs> Thank you. She's sort of like the Amazons in that way, the Valkyrie. So she, she doesn't get depowered. She just gets moved over to a different group of, of people and still has these powers and abilities. She's a really interesting case because, you know, I was worried it was just going to be a gimmick of like, let's have Thor be a woman for a bit. But it actually was a, a lasting change for both characters, which I think is really, really interesting. So there's that. I wanted to quickly mention, just because it's so recent, but Daredevil, which I love to read. Chip Zdarsky's current run of Daredevil has Elektra as Daredevil right now in the Daredevil oh, really? outfit. You can, you can sort of see her... 
Yeah. You can see her sort of face in, in these and how her outfit is a little different. She has her size, classic size here and everything, um, which is a, a really, really cool thing in general. Just came out with a mini series for her. Whoopsies. A mini series for her that I have single issues of called Daredevil Woman Without Fear because Daredevil's catchphrase is that he's the man without fear. So there's that. She's a really interesting case just because she's already a character. This isn't like a, a love interest becoming a superhero. This is a, a superhero becoming a different superhero. So there's that element too. So many examples that I could give you that uh, of, of this sort of stuff. One of the last ones I want to talk about though is da, 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 Gwen Stacy. Going back to Gwen Stacy now. Because if anyone has seen a very famous movie in 2018, there is a character known as Spider-Gwen. So... Yeah. yeah. So Spider-Gwen is an interesting thing. Essentially, in 2014, they wanted to create a comic book event called Spider-Verse, where they'd bring a bunch of spider characters to one universe and have them interact with each other and stuff. And one of the universes, they decided to make Gwen Stacy Spider-Man instead of Peter Parker. So this, this change brought Gwen back from a refrigerator character into a new character of her own. So this model, I think, just using Gwen as an example, can be a really good way to rectify past mistakes with female representation using sort of comic book logic of uh, alternate dimensions and universes and so forth to have a completely different scenario happen in another universe and, and be able to tell that person's story. So while Gwen had been sort of known for her death only for so long, just that she had died, Spider-Gwen has revitalized the character to allow comic book fans to really actually know her now as her own Spider-Man, or in, in her case, a Spider-Woman. But yeah, so I think that's a really great example as well. All right. Overall then, it's a complicated question to ask, or rather to answer, I'm sorry. Uh, Liz, when you asked me this question, I, I, I really had to think about, and I hope you understand how much detail I put into this, but I really had to think about the, like, like what I was, like how I was going to answer this, because it's really, really complicated, you know? Of course, it would be nice to have new female characters, but books with familiar characters sell better, and there's a better chance for the book to make money and also find an audience and that sort of thing. The good thing, beyond introducing female superheroes is that legacy books can actually be a vehicle to introduce entirely new and unconnected female characters as well. And this is the last point. This is sort of the broader where we go from here. The example, which I will get into a bit more later, is from the New 52's Batgirls. New 52 is just like DC Comics from like 2010 to like 2020 or so, something like that. It was sort of like the subtitle for DC Comics. So for the New 52, for the Batgirl title that was out, that, that book introduced the first major trans character named Alicia Yo. And so they're the first transgender character in mainstream comics. She's a trans woman, and her coming out is gracious and is not a big whoa reveal moment, but rather a tender conversation between her and Batgirl, where they share their feelings and personal information growing closer for it. So it's a really natural moment. It's not like played as a plot point. It's just it's it's a great it's just a great moment of representation. And and that character is like like in DC Comics, you know? And so these legacy books are able to, like once you have the audience, you can then create side characters and then maybe create spin-offs of those characters as well. So there's hope there as well. But that's the best answer I got for you. <laughs> All right. So I want to move on to a few that have far shorter histories. Katie, you mentioned Black Widow. Her history is tied up in the Cold War. There's a bit of Iron Man context. Iron Man was an experiment by Stan Lee. When Iron Man was created, he wanted to create a character that he figured comic book fans would not like. And so he... They, he Amen created, to that. Like, Who likes Iron Man? <laughs> right? <laughs> no worries. Couldn't be me. Yeah, he's, he's fine. Anyway, <laughs> um, so this means 
a weapons manufacturer for the U.S. Army and for the Vietnam War was like a flagship character for his own book. And that was Stanley's plan, inventing Iron Man. So it's the same origin as the movie itself, but captured in like Vietnam in the comic books, but captured in Afghanistan in the movie. It's like it's just trying to update it and that sort of thing. So why I mention Iron Man is that Black Widow was introduced in Iron Man books and as an Iron Man character and an Iron Man villain. And it was a part of the Cold War. Like Iron Man will never get away from wars in terms of his, in terms of his comic book history. And so during the Cold War, she was literally just the like archetypical Red Scare Soviet communist assassin spy. And so that was kind of her origin story. She was a faceless, costumeless Russian spy. That was really all it was. She eventually turned and defected to the U.S., becoming an Avenger, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. She has her own solo books now. She's a side character in books like Amazing Spider-Man and Daredevil. She was actually a love interest for Daredevil for a little while in the early 2000s, which is really neat. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, I think the 90s too, maybe. Anyway, so she's been a love interest for Daredevil as well. Other than huge comic book fans, Widow wasn't really known and she wasn't really like a superhero the way the others were. Like when I went to see Avengers in 2012 and Black Widow was in it, I was kind of confused. (laughs) I kind of watched the movie being like, so you you have Thor and Hulk and Captain America and Iron Man and then like at least Hawkeye has a bow. But then you have, like, just an assassin Black Widow. But you know what I mean? Like, because from my perspective, in 2012, Black Widow was only really known as a spy. And she was an Avenger, sure, and and was in Avengers books. But she really had that sort of spy mentality and always connected to, to S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, and that sort of world. But since then, of course, she's become a huge phenomenon and incredibly successful and all those sorts of things. She's also, unfortunately, even in the movie, has been sexualized, especially as a seductive Russian spy sort of way. Iron Man 2 is a movie that really exemplifies that sort of part of her persona. Even the first Avengers movie and, and others as well. In any case, the point here is that Black Widow doesn't have a, like a major comic book origin because she wasn't really as well known until the movies came out, if that makes sense. Similarly to this character, we have Robin's requested character, Gamora. And so, <laughs> with Gamora, uh, she is a cosmic character. Cosmic in, in this context means both sci-fi space characters and literal mana- meta- metaphysical manifestations. So, like, a cosmic character could be, like, someone in space or could be a character literally named Eternity. That's the cosmic Marvel universe, essentially. So, G- Gamora is a cosmic character. Like in the movies, she was created as the adopted daughter of Thanos, who is a very high-level villain in the Marvel universe, She's the last of her species and a master assassin and hand-to-hand combatant. Uh, She, of course, is one of the Guardians of the Galaxy, but was not a member of the team until its revamp in 2008. Before then, she was used in various cosmic stories, including stories about Adam Warlock and Silver Surfer, who are two very major cosmic characters. Similar to Black Widow, she was relegated to the sidelines before the MCU. She kicks absolute ass in those movies. She is amazing, uh, played by Zoe Saldana. Her interpretation in the movies is a really solid form of female representation, Uh, absolutely. The Guardian movies actually are are really meant to be somewhat satirical of superhero storytelling. And so when you watch movies like Guardians of the Galaxy, they really play with this sort of idea. And there are scenes where Star-Lord, played by Chris Pratt, is trying to like flirt with or fall in love with Gamora. And she's just like not really having it, not really falling for it. She's too busy. Exactly. And so it's... She's busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it has... uh, like, even in that way, it's sort of undermining classic superhero understandings of what love interests are and female characters and stuff. So some really solid representation in those movies, I would say. 
But that's really it for Gamora. I'm sorry there's not more. <laughs> that's okay. I think she's badass. Yeah, she's that's super it. cool. Well, but, you know, Robin, it is it is your time to shine in that we have finally reached your major character that you requested. One of the ones I was so excited to talk about because I, I, I know a lot about her. You'll notice, listeners, I haven't mentioned a very famous legacy character yet. A character who we can look at for both gender and female representation and the representation of disability. And that is none other than Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. So. Yay! Yeah, Batgirl is sick as hell. So, here are the origins of Batgirl. She really started on the 1960s Adam West Batman TV show. Well, we'll get in touch with you, Batgirl, in case we find some more clothes. Where can I get in touch with you, Batman? Yes, that has been a problem, but we'll manage. We have before. You know, the, the, the one I'm talking about, the boo, like pow, biff, all that sort of stuff that would come up on the screen. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's where she started. There was a Batwoman character who had a Batgirl sidekick. Sorry, the show is the entity that made Batgirl as a character, the daughter of Commissioner Gordon and that sort of thing. Like, so a lot of what, what you know about for Batgirl comes from the TV show. So like with Legacy Heroes, we discussed already, she was used to hopefully revitalize the series and draw in a female audience. Basically, by season three of the Batman Adam West TV show, audiences were dwindling, and so they wanted to add something new, and so they brought in this new revamped Batgirl. Though she uh, she was essentially created as a uh, feminist icon in the 60s and in, in, intended as a reflection of women's liberation, while that is true, she was actually depicted in rather sexist ways as well. Most notably, she has a bat purse, <laughs> which kept all her gadgets. That were attached to her utility belt. So Well, you know, she's just a little yeah. girl, right? <laughs> so What I do find fascinating is that she's normally more clothed than most comic book superheroines. Uh, like she doesn't ever have a crop top, but that might also be because she's a member of the Bat family or like a Batman character where they're more sort of geared up and gadgeted and all that sort of stuff. And they don't have superpowers, so they don't have like literal thick skin that would stop bullets and that sort of thing, so it makes pragmatic sense, but I do find it interesting that she's she's generally more clothed than some of the other superheroines. All right, so the main thing I want to talk about with Batgirl is, of course, uh, when she she was paralyzed in her spine, and she had to to essentially live in a wheelchair after a certain event in a comic book known as Batman: The Killing Joke. So that's this one here. So. The Killing Joke is an interesting Joker story. It's Well, it's a, it's a Batman story that has the Joker as the main villain, and Joker's point throughout the whole story is that all you need is one bad day to go crazy. That's his that's his sort of idea, is that, like, if you have one bad day, you can be... you can go absolutely insane. And he tries to prove this theory by trying to make Commissioner Gordon go insane. So that's the, the crux of the plot of the story. He, he tries to essentially, like, fuck with Commissioner Gordon's mind. And to do so, he uses Gordon's daughter, Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. So I do want to have one more trigger warning here. There is stuff that's going to be about implied rape and sexual assault and that sort of thing. And so I just want to mention that going forward. In terms of you guys, there are images that I would like to show you, but they might be a little graphic. So <laughs> I just want to preface that before you see them, if that's all right with folks. Okay. Okay. So... Essentially, he chooses Commissioner Gordon and puts him through a psychologically torturing experience. He does this by finding their apartment. And this is the moment here where he enters the apartment and shoots Barbara Gordon. So you see a couple of panels. You see this panel, 
gun, her face, and then she's shot, and then she's on the ground. So what he does is he, he knocks out Commissioner Gordon, and when he knocks Commissioner Gordon unconscious, he essentially strips Barbara Gordon naked and takes photos of her. And when he does that, he eventually brings Commissioner Gordon to an abandoned amusement park. And when he's at this amusement park, he strips Commissioner Gordon to be naked and straps Commissioner Gordon to a like roller coaster kind of system and puts him through like a fun house. And the fun house is splattered with photos of his naked daughter. Oh, so my that's gosh. yeah, it's very it's needlessly dark in a lot of ways. So that's the killing joke. And this moment is seminal for Barbara Gordon in her history because it gives her uh, essentially, well, it paralyzes her spine. So she has to use a wheelchair, which is a big character change for her. So there's a lot of controversy of the sexism, of course. People argue that sir, she's used as a prop or a plot tool rather than a character with agency. A very well-known refrigerator moment, right? So the aftermath of this is really important because... Barbara Gordon is now in a wheelchair and instead of leaving the Bat family and leaving the sort of comics in general, they give her a new persona, which I think is really, really interesting. And that persona is of Oracle. And Oracle is the name of, well, it's the name of Barbara Gordon as as she's this new character. Essentially, Oracle sits in her wheelchair in the Batcave and she looks through all the computers and all the, like the, the security cameras and stuff and essentially is the first person in a chair kind of thing where like she'll tell the hero where they need to go and that sort of thing, hack into different stuff and whatever. And the person at HQ sort of guiding the hero through their missions, which is a fantastic role for her. And, and, you know, some, there is some debate where people say that Oracle doesn't do anything and that she should never have, have been paralyzed and that sort of thing. But I would argue she's done a lot, if not more, as Oracle than she has as, as Batgirl. So That shows, like, what more you can do when you're stuck in a corner instead of just killing them. Well, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she has her own villains. Like, she has the Calculator, which is a really dumb name for a villain, but he's, like, this big hacker villain. Sorry, what? <laughs> I mean, me too. The calculator's my friend, actually. Yeah, she just hates math. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, so she's a really cool character. There, there is, of course, the intersectionality now of gender and disability. Alan Moore, who wrote The Killing Joke, said later in 2006 that when he asked DC if they were okay with him breaking her spine, the editor at the time, and I quote here, said, okay, cripple the bitch. It's literally, uh... yeah. So the insensitivity from editors of these comic book industries continues. In, in, in these various examples. It's another big theme, obviously. So there's overall debate over her paralyzation. Some favor Batgirl as opposed to Oracle. Some very ableist comments are out there, like from Ray Tate, a reviewer of the Comics Bulletin, who said, quote, It's ridiculous to think someone wakes up thinking how lucky they are to be confined to a wheelchair, and that Batgirl has done so much more good for Gotham than Oracle. So there are some pretty iffy comments that way, absolutely. How about, like, not dying? Yeah, right. So anyway, the next thing I want to quickly mention is a comparison to a Batman story called Nightfall. So Gail Simone related Batgirl's moment of having her back broken to when Batman had his back broken in the 90s in the seminal work called Nightfall. So it's a a pretty big story from the 1990s. Bane, the first appearance of Bane, the Batman villain, breaks Batman's back. And she relates, she rather, she compares the two situations, and I want to quickly do that with you, because I think it's a really excellent comparison of how disability is represented. So for Batman, he walks in, he's Bruce Wayne, he's very tired, and he walks into Wayne Manor and sees Bane there. And he's like, holy shit, 
Oh my god. And then, essentially, as the issue progresses, he and Bane fight. It's big. It's operatic. They're crashing into stuff. Flying all around. It's this huge moment. Oh my god, Batman's bleeding on the ground. The case that holds the old Robin suit is destroyed. Everything seems lost. And finally, we have... I am Bane. I could kill you, but death would be uh, would only end your agony and silence your shame. And then he picks Batman up and says, "Instead, I will break you." Like a spaghetti noodle. And like, and and the last image of that issue is Bane like snapping Batman's back by like throwing his back on top of his knee, and it's this like insanely over the top, dramatic, violent. Uh, uh, paralyzing of Batman. That was in the compare Nolan that, movie. It was, and it, they, they did an homage to it in the Nolan movie. They absolutely did. But compare that to this one moment where Joker opens the door and shoots Barbara Gordon. She has no dialogue. It's over in one page across about six or seven panels. And then she's sexualized. Exactly. So this is Gail Simone's way of saying... Different kind of respect. Yeah, exactly. A very different kind of respect. And, th and that's exactly it. So, there are some books that help give agency to this story for paralyzation. Oracle Year One is, is, is a book that I would highly recommend for people in terms of uh, giving agency to Barbara Gordon as Oracle. There are lines from uh, Batgirl from the New 52 where, you know, uh, uh, she says things like, I panic every time I hear a doorbell for months after, but I survived. The Joker never beat me. The bullet never beat me. So they're like, writers have written Batgirl since of like her dealing with this trauma in empowering ways, which is really wonderful. Now I have here the, the, the New 52, I have two volumes of Batgirl from New 52 in front of me that I'm showing these folks. Written by Gail Simone, our lovely writer. And this was a big thing. So when the New 52, 52 happened it was essentially a moment to revamp and modernize a lot of the characters and so Batgirl for for New 52 when Batgirl came out they decided to go with Barbara Gordon as Batgirl and so with the New 52 one of the things is that they're trying to modernize characters and revamp characters and so it was a moment for people to say hey why not in this world we uh essentially have her like fix her paralyzed like get treatment for her paralyzation or whatever <laughs> and and have her be able to walk again and be Batgirl again and there was some controversy over this decision. So, like, you know, deciding whether or not they wanted to do it or not want to do it, whether or not it was better to leave a dis disability-represented character or that, like, you know, it, there were a lot of issues about whether or not they should do this. Overall, reading this, I think they actually do it really well. I think that they, they it's a good representation and it's a fair representation and an understandable one. And it's written by Gail Simone. She's a really considerate person in this sort of way. So... Batgirl New 52 sort of rounds out this whole story of her now being able to walk again. And it's not that they erased the story. It's that she got an experimental surgery that actually exists in the world. Like, it, it's a it's a, a very plausible way that it happened. It, it wasn't like magic. It wasn't that they pretended that... Yeah. And they, they didn't get rid of the of the killing joke. There's actually a really great panel. And a lot of, a lot of the early stuff for Gail Simone's Batgirl is her dealing with the, the post-traumatic trauma of it. But you can see a very similar panel from the killing joke in this uh, in this issue. And it's essentially a, a flashback for her because someone's holding a gun at a very similar position. And she's like, oh my God, the gun, it's, it's pointed right right at the same, he's gonna shoot me. And it's essentially dealing with her, her PTSD in a really interesting way. So highly recommend that stuff. 
I just want to have a brief word about Batman and Robin, which is a terrible movie from the 1997, solely because I, and I think you'll, you'll find this so interesting. There is a debate over sort of proper feminism, of course, like ways to, to act in feminine ways, you know, whether you should be sexual or whether that's a sort of a de detriment to women's rights and all that sort of stuff. A lot of back and forth and a lot of debate. This is very clear and, and clearly depicted in the portrayal of Poison Ivy and Batgirl and Batman and Robin. So, essentially, it's the finale. Poison Ivy is fighting Batman and Robin, and Batgirl comes in and is there to save the day and save these two guys who've been strung up by Poison Ivy's vines and whatever. Uh, so, firstly, Poison Ivy kicks and uses a vine whip, which is very sexual. Batgirl fights with precision and expertise, which is very skilled. So we already have this dy dynamic of, like, sort of very sexual and, and, and weird and, and not very skilled, and then precision and intelligent and that sort of thing. Setting up a clear dynamic between these two female characters. Poison Ivy pulls a knife, but takes a second to admire her reflection and fix her hair. And Batgirl takes that chance to attack. Yay. Bat Batgirl says the following. And this is really interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Batgirl says, Using feminine wiles to get what you want, trading on your looks, exploiting men's weakness for sex. Read a book, sister. That passive-aggressive crap went, went out a long time ago. Chicks like you give women a bad name. It's just, it's frustrating for me. Isn't it? And I, and I don't know if you know this, and I, I would love to know more about, like, how many, uh, like, the ratio of, like, male to female writers in comic books. But it's so interesting. And, I mean, like, all of comic sure. books, like, hero, vil, everything's a dichotomy. Everything's binary. But it's, like, we can't represent a multifaceted woman. Mm -hmm. We have to represent, like, a just, good strong woman or like um like morally corrupt sexual women yeah and that somehow both like one or both of those mm -hmm. things seems to be out of date but like why couldn't we have a woman like a hero or a villain who like is smart and cunning and precise but also sexual yeah. like yeah yeah exactly yeah absolutely yeah and, and that's yeah there are not a lot of female writers in comic books Gail Simone is, is like the most famous out of all of them, but there aren't too many, at least that I know of. And yeah, and, and I think this scene between Batgirl and Poison Ivy really points at, at that sort of the attitude of feminism at the time of like, you know, like we need to show like we need men to accept us. So we need to stop being the thing that they perceive us as when in reality, especially in a more modern understanding of like in a more present day understanding of, of feminism and women's rights is like, no, men are the problem. Like, don't like, you know, like <laughs> you should be whoever you want to be or whoever you, whoever you, whatever you want to do, you should be able to do it and not be stigmatized just because you're a woman. You know, like if you like looking at yourself in a mirror or you like being like more openly sexual, or if you like anything like that, you shouldn't be shunned for being a girly girl and be praised for being a more masculine woman. Who's like, I don't know, more to gadgets and stuff or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't, it, that doesn't, that doesn't translate. And so I think it's just a really interesting scene that, that sort of takes that point home that's also related to Batgirl. So to wrap this episode up, <laughs> which is, it, there's just been so many fun things to talk about. Um, I just wanted to quickly, I think it's really kind of interesting that none of you mentioned the X-Men, which is really interesting. I'm, I'm not so this is so I I think why is because exactly that is that I don't think they're as well known in terms of mainstream culture. But they're super cool. They are they super cool. A lot of like visibility representation. They do. And that kind of thing. They do, and they also have the largest gallery of female superheroes, I believe. 
which partly makes sense because they're a team. Like it's it's not like a single superhero. Like there have to be lots of characters in general. But like just to list off a few, we have Mystique, who's a master assassin shapeshifter, who's just badass and evil as hell. There's Storm, who's an Omega level mutant, which is a big deal in the comics, who's considered a weather goddess, and she's also a character from Kenya in an early attempt at black representation in comics from the seventies. She's one of my favorite characters. Full stop. I fucking love Storm. She's so cool. Played by Halle Berry in the movies. You have Rogue, whose powers are siphoning the life force from those who touch, uh, who she touches, killing them. There's Psylocke. There's Shadowcat. There's like, oh my god. There's Jubilee. There's Jean Grey, who's a phoenix, who is like ultra powerful. There's uh, uh, Scarlet Witch, who literally like remade reality a couple times. Like, like the and they're called the X Men, which I think is really funny. But um, they have some of the most, you know, you know, but they have some of the most powerful and epic and amazing women out there in, in superhero comics. So highly recommend checking those out as well. You gotta have like an XY men to get both. Yes! <laughs> That's hilarious. Overall, particularly because the battery is about to die on my laptop. That's, that's what I got for you. Those are, those are the superheroes. That's it? comics. I know, right? <laughs> I didn't cover it up. Well, that's but freaking that's amazing, it. though. That's it. It was so. very, very good. So much. Yeah, holy. I want to go like watch a bunch of Marvel movies. Now. I do want to go rewatch Into the Spider Verse now. Yeah. Oh yeah. And a much right? deeper that's appreciation it. too for like the role role of women and when it's done right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they have been like women have been in comics since their conception. They've been there in different ways and often, unfortunately, manipulated by male writers and creators. But they they've been there and. There's such they, they, there's such a wealth of, of female characters, uh, good and bad, and and yeah, I mean I highly recommend checking out anything that I've mentioned. If anyone who is listening has any questions about superheroes in general, I love I love talking about this stuff. But uh, there you go. Thanks for listening, folks, and thanks for li- for you three listening to me talk about this. Of so course, long. thank you. I now you. know what it's like to be Katie and Liz in the hot seat here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. So there you go. Happy Women's cool. History Month. <laughs> happy women's history month thank you all right flip flop goodbye all well that's uh, what should we say that that's also a wrap on <gasps> oh yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i was about to say my goodbye for a while <laughs> see you all what? in a couple months probably we haven't figured out a timeline keep an Katie's eye on our tired. social medias she's like yeah it's 11 p.m it is oh my god <laughs> i think i think I would say so. Yeah, right on. Uh, For season three. So bear with us. Follow us on all of our social medias, which are down below. Yeah. uh, We'll still be posting lots then. Still? Mm -hmm. We will start posting uh, once again. (laughs) Maybe we'll do um, one of our monthly roundups and we'll we'll do a bunch of like superhero things to check out. Oh, heck yeah. Yes. That'd be sick. Movies to watch. Yeah. Comic books to read. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a fun season. It's been so great. It's been a wild season. We have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, All right. And with that, guys. <laughs> thank you for listening. We love you. And we will see you on the flippity flop at Woo! an undisclosed time. Ta-ta. Digital Dust is reported on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, 
Haudenosaunee, Lenapawak, and Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis people, and Inuit people, whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingen, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Mattias Miller. <laughs>